Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climate Consulting. In today's episode, I speak to Ian Price, the leading sales expert, performance psychologist and author. Ian is a CEO turned business psychologist, specialising in helping organisations both develop effective sales processes and build the mental toughness needed to achieve them. Having previously worked in consulting and in a number of executive roles across telecoms and tech, Ian has become an expert in selling and business development, specialising in helping professional services businesses improve their own sales capability. This is an episode that I've wanted to do for such a long time. Sales is so often seen as a dirty word in consulting, but ultimately it's a key skill for anyone who has ambitions of making it to partner. In the increasingly competitive world that we now work in, the ability to sell is essential for success. However, sales can often be seen as an intimidating task for consultants. I get it. I've been there. I know the challenges that I'm sure you're facing if you're listening to this now. So for me, it was great to be able to bring Ian onto the show and get that professional take and hear his perspective to help hopefully take away that fear and provide a refreshing approach to selling. During this conversation, 
we discuss a whole host of topics directly related to how you can improve your own and your firm's sales capability. We discuss the difference between zero-sum and positive-sum selling and how it can really help you overcome your fear of actually going to sell to clients. Ian's practical advice for building an effective lead pipeline, something that I know so many of you have asked me about informally, even from a standing start, even if you have no leads or no current conversations that are ongoing. And finally, the process and systems that you can use to help supercharge your selling, whether you're running a whole firm, running a practice, or you are just trying to sell more business yourself. It was great to meet Ian and hear his thought-provoking views on how best to approach the often daunting task of selling. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and that Ian's advice will encourage you to develop your own effective sales process to boost your business development pipeline and ultimately help you grow your career. So with all that said, sit back, relax and enjoy my conversation with Ian Price. Hi Ian, welcome to the show. Hi Nick, great to be here, thank you. So I think today's conversation is one that I've been I've been dying to have really since I launched the podcast. And I, I did do my own episode, which is probably nowhere near as good and has nowhere near the advice we're going to cover today. But what we're talking about, obviously, is selling and sales and, and helping consultants sell. Because I think, you know, we've spoken before the show about how big a challenge it is, and we'll dive into it throughout today's interview. But before we get onto the topic, because we've got a good hour or so, and we can talk for all of that, and I'm really keen to about selling. But actually, it'd be great to start with, for my listeners who maybe don't know you so well, just a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a performance psychologist. i kind of relate myself a little bit to the help that elite athletes get from psychologists on their performance. It's now increasingly recognized that in business, people need help with particularly mental toughness, which is my my specialism, help with resilience when things get tough, help with motivation, help with personal growth, with the ability to persist with cognitive performance. All of these are uh, are dimensions of mental toughness and, and the application is particularly acute, I think, in, in sales and in selling. I've come to that from a rather a distant, circuitous route, if you like, because I actually started out when I left university donkeys years ago in strategy consulting. So I became a what they then called a research associate in NEK in the, the late 1980s and the boom years. And those were heady times for consulting because it was, you know, quite a new thing to, to have teams of analysts sort of churning out graphs and spreadsheets and, and stuff uh, and doing acquisition studies. And it got me very interested in uh, the psychology of work. So I, I had an, a little itch start there, which I didn't do anything about for another 20 years or so. I, what, what happened was I went into industry, into telecoms, spent a couple of decades, a lot of that time in marketing roles supporting sales teams. So I got interested in selling at that point. And then I did a couple of CEO roles uh, for startups and telecoms and payments companies. In 2010, uh, I changed career, having completed a two-year master's in organizational behavior at Birkbeck, and then started consulting as a performance psychologist and quickly became a specialist in mental toughness and started to get asked to do some work with sales teams. Uh, Initially, what I would call industrial sales teams, by which I mean people selling financial services, products, software, what have you, rather than consulting. The consulting came came a bit later, and I can come to the differences between the two, which are fewer than you might think. So now I spend quite a lot of my time with industrial sales teams, 
quite a lot of time with consulting firms that want to get better at the sales part of what they do. But I also use mental toughness in different contexts, such as customer-facing teams that get a lot of pressure from, from external customers and life can be tough. So I'm, I'm, I'm not at the sort of well-being, mental health end of things. I'm much more in the helping people flourish uh, and perform at their best and at their peak. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a fantastic intro to get us right into the topic. And I think the thing for, for today, because there's, there's so much in there, I, I want to pick up on what mental toughness means to you and to your clients and, and, and how that plays out. Because I, I really do like the the analogy you make around the, the sports side and, and how that high-performing athletes have performance psychologists and everything you spoke about and actually how they're feeding into business. Um, it also helps that actually when it comes to metaphors, I can barely do any, but sports is about the only thing I can make a passable <laughs> metaphor in. So it's, it, it's great that we've got, you know, we've got a common language there. Um, but I guess, and this might be a nice way to sort of ease into that conversation about almost why you need mental toughness. You mentioned that you work with consulting firms around this sales piece. Because I think the first thing before we even dive into how to improve sales and, and how you can build that resilience to keep knocking on doors when people say no is almost what is it that you find sort of those first hang-ups when you're speaking to consultants. So what I, what I mean is, you know, from my time when I was in the industry, there were people who you'd meet who, frankly, I think selling has a very bad reputation in our industry. And, and to the point where, as almost a badge of honor, some consultants would call themselves delivery people. So, I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a grubby salesperson. I'm a, I'm a delivery consultant. And actually, maybe we start there of almost, when you're working with consulting clients, you know, what are some of those, those challenges you hear? And, and almost how do you start to help people overcome and break down those barriers so they can even start to think about sales. You're absolutely right about sales having a bad reputation. I think it has a bad reputation full stop and sometimes deservedly so. And one of the first barriers that I confront very commonly is that people have a lot of baggage around sales. So when when consultants, particularly if they're looking to progress in their organization, are told you need to start becoming quite good at selling. One of the main inhibitors is, is the negativity with which they regard sales. And you know, an exercise I'll often do in a workshop situation is say to people, step outside your day job, think about your life outside work, grab a post-it, write down the first three words that come to your mind when you think about sales or selling. And this was an exercise Dan Pink did when he was researching his book, To Sell is Human, which kind of preempts uh, further reading on the, on, the, on the subject. But uh, what tends to happen, you put these post-its up on the wall, the sorts of words that come up are pushy, sleazy, you know, used car salesman, double glazing, yuck, those sorts of words. And, and then I ask the question, do you think that this bleeds into how you think about sales at work? Does it inhibit the way we think about sales and, our, and the doing of, of, of sales? And of course it does. I've thought deeply about why, why that happens. And when you look at sales over the years, Going back to sort of the post-war period in 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 the, in the West, it was boom time. You could it was it was the era of mass property ownership and wealth, and of course people were flogging all sorts of stuff in a sort of fairly remorseless fashion. And unfortunately, that reputation has stuck. But that sort of selling has kind of died away. It's almost completely dead, particularly in a business-to-business context. But the, it's the sort of uh, encyclopedia selling that yeah, you hear, you know, you hear yeah. about in books of old. Yeah, it doesn't really happen anymore. But the reputation is still there, and and, and in the, all the tropes that we have from films, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, Wolf of Wall Street, they're all from a certain type of selling. So what I say to people is, we need to kind of put that 
view of selling where it belongs in the past. Unfortunately, it still has echoes in the way industrial salespeople are trained, but that's another thing altogether. But I say to people, let's just use very, very simple game theory to distinguish that historic form of selling from what you are doing today. And the way I do this, I, I say, you can think of that old fashioned, sleazy, pushy selling as zero sum selling, very transactional. Mm-hmm. I am just trying to get something from you, money, and I'm not too bothered about whether you actually need the product that I've got, whether it's going to enrich you or whether it's going to add value in any sort of way. So the, that's a pretty much a zero-sum transaction. When I talk to people in consulting firms about what they sell, is there value added? Is the pie bigger from having worked together, from having delivered some sort of you know, consulting piece of work? Well, of course it is. So it's, it's positive sum. It isn't zero-sum, it's positive sum. And when I get people to think of those two things in completely different ways it becomes much more liberating for them. Because if you're positive sum selling, what you're trying to do is establish a fit. You're not doing something sleazy. You're not, you're not doing something where you're manipulating the customer to buying something that has no value to them. You're trying to establish a, a situation where there's a mutual benefit. Clearly, you'll be getting a, a nice fee, but they'll be getting something of value above and beyond the fee that you're, you're deriving for the service. Now, does zero-sum selling exist in the consulting world? Well, um, there are examples from time to time, and people people will occasionally point me to firms where they have witnessed it. But when I'm working with you know consulting firms, they're very quick and ready to admit, actually, it's not zero-sum at all. It's very much positive sum. And then you can start to think about sales differently. Now, if, if, you, if you look back at zero-sum selling, the mindset of historic sales organizations, and I'm afraid there are still pockets of it around, is that every opportunity can be a sale. Because, you know, if you can manipulate the prospect into buying from you, you can turn that into a sale. But you need the right sorts of techniques. So you need objection handling, you need closing techniques, you need influencing skills. And these are the sorts of things that sometimes still pervade sales training in the traditional sense. And sometimes consultants are exposed to this and it's very off-putting. You don't need any of that if you're in the positive sum sales mode. All you need to do is establish whether there's a fit or not. So I agree with you, by the way, it's worth saying, and, and I see the positive sum side of it and you know, day in, day out, having these conversations for, for my own business. But sort of for someone who's thinking, they sort of buy what you're saying, what are those key differences? What does a positive sum conversation or sales conversation look like, you know, in contrast to what you've painted for that sort of zero sum side? So for the first thing you can say is that you can let go of this idea that you've got to bring some sort of dark art to the whole thing. So there is no mysterious black art. You don't have to worry whether you've brought certain techniques to bear or not. Have you run the meeting in the right way? I encourage people just to liberate themselves from all that. All you've got to do is establish a fit or establish whether or not there is a fit. So that means having a fairly doesn't need to be a particularly structured conversation with somebody but is there anything where you know, this is what we do this is what we do well this is what we see in the industry this is how we've helped out other clients delivering insights at this point can be very powerful and very quickly getting to a mutual understanding of whether there is a potential fit between you or not if there isn't fine then there can be a number of reasons why there isn't a fit then then you move on but if there is a fit and there's a mutual benefit to working together then that should be comfortably progressed to the next stage. 
There is nothing sleazy or pushy or manipulative about that. And it should be something that people feel culturally at ease with and and be able to let go of some of the negativity and the fear that they've attached to it in the past. I sort of know you gave the justification for it earlier, but that that cultural element is quite an interesting one as well, isn't it? In that sort of us Brits, and it may be by virtue of all of the things you described earlier, but we just seem to have a greater aversion to sales than some other of nations, you know, particularly the the easiest dichotomy to draw is the states, isn't it? Where in the states everyone's a salesman, and I've had guests on before talking about the, I guess, the, the challenges and benefits of that when you're moving mm-hmm. from UK to to mm-hmm. the states and vice versa. And in your experience, is, is it a particularly British thing? And if so, you know, what what are some of those elements that are unique to Brits? Is it the things you described earlier, or is there anything else that you know you, you find? And your is it a mainly British challenge, or you know, what what is it that holds us Brits back? So I mentioned. Dan Pink's uh, research for his book, To Sell as Human. And it was really stunning how much negativity came from his US audience. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, and and I've done this sort of work pretty much all over the place, including Southeast Asia. And, you know, I'm, I'm amazed how similar people are. More often, it's the, it's the, it's the similarities that, that strike me rather than the differences culturally. And, and is it the similarities of the things you, you've highlighted? Or I'm intrigued, you know, are there any other similarities that almost people wouldn't expect or jump out in terms of those challenges to not thinking they can sell or not, well, actually at this stage, it's not wanting to sell? Yeah. So, so other similarities pretty much pervade all sorts of cultures. Another example I would give is the sort of one of the other myths that I come across, particularly amongst consultants, which is that people have a vision or a, a premise around constitutes a natural salesperson and uh, it's quite common for people to look at the founders of their consulting firm and say well they're natural salespeople but what's actually happened is those people have often built their skills otherwise they would have thrown it in and gone back to to taking a salaried role somewhere and when when people think about what a natural sales person is they'll often assume that it's an extrovert that successful salespeople are, you know, backslapping, golf playing, sort of... Uh, yeah, Wolf of yeah, Wall Street, Wolf isn't Wall Street it? type yeah, folk. Yeah, yeah. And without necessarily doing a personality profile, most consultants that are quite analytical in nature think of themselves as being further towards the introversion end of the, of the, of the spectrum. And what's quite interesting is, as with so much of this work, there is pretty good science on it, Adam Grant, a uh, well-known social psychologist, has done a great study with a sales team matching performance against where people sit uh, on the introversion-extroversion curve. And he found that high extroverts perform as badly as high introverts, which seems counterintuitive at first. But what seems to be the case is very high extroverts turn out to be really bad at listening. And I've witnessed this in some of my work with industrial sales teams when I've gone on calls with highly extrovert salespeople who, you know, turn up at the meeting, ask a question and then talk over the prospect before they've even managed to get anything out. So, and I, and I witnessed that a lot. So, you know, introverts with good listening skills, with a a measure of empathy, are much better placed to perform really well in the sales role and, and grow their skills in that area than they possibly think. I want to come on to how people build that skills, but I think there's a really important piece in what you've just said. And, and actually, it comes back to what you were saying before. Of 
Yeah, ultimately, consultants are problem solvers because no one knows what management consulting is. And frankly, after however long I spent in the industry, I still couldn't give you a definition that you could. You know, I always say the acid test is can you explain it to like a 10 mm. year old? And I couldn't. But, you know, problem solving is the closest you'd get. And I, I think, you know, what I'm hearing from you and, and completely agree as well in my experience is ultimately, you know, selling should be nothing more. And this isn't just to belittle it, but nothing more than helping someone solve their problems. And to do that, like you say, you need to listen, you need to empathize, you need to build a solution. And then if that solution has a, a monetary value associated, that's a sale. You mm-hmm. know, the, the difference between advice and a, sa- and a sale is just the, the money you exchange. But I, it sounds like that's sort of, well, that's what I'm, I'm getting from your, from your explanation in terms of helping people is actually it's just that mindset shift from I'm not putting on like a pinstripe suit here. It's just I'm doing what I do, but in a slightly different frame yeah. of reference. Would you, would you agree with that? I think that's right. And that's absolutely right. I mean, what, what we've described there might sound a little bit passive. There is a sort of proactive element to it. And I would describe that as being the output of some of the good research on what makes for high-performance selling in industrial contexts. I'm thinking here of the work that CEB, now part of Gartner, did for the challenger sale, where they said that challengers are the highest-performing salespeople. And what they said was that, you know, challengers take control of the sale, they're assertive, they deliver business insights. So what I wouldn't want to do is give the impression that great selling amongst consultants is, is about asking what problems the prospective client might have and then crafting a solution. It's, it's often a bit more proactive than that. And it doesn't have to be about the relationship. Sometimes you know, some of the highest performing consultants that I've met have actually been quite rude, not in the sense of rude selling, being aggressive, but being very, very insightful to the point where it borders on being slightly rude. But that's something that is that, that is of value. Those those conversations, those those mm-hmm. sales meetings, can be of enormous value in themselves to the client. Yeah, and, and it's funny. I, you'd have to ask my clients, or, or maybe the ones that haven't hired us, they probably would say different. But I think, like you say, there, there's a fine balance, and I try and for me personally, that's a, a big thing to focus on. But like you say, the the, the thing I was going to highlight is actually the experience I've had is exactly that. Is it obviously depends on the client or the the prospect, but people want you to tell them the truth and and be upfront with them because ultimately if you are there to help them with a problem or you know, in, the, in the services context part of your value is is explaining what that problem is and where you see their problems and actually then it's on them to select it and mm-hmm. you know some the old cliche isn't it some, some clients probably do want you to take their watch and tell them the time but mm-hmm. some some want you to make them a new watch mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's knowing the difference and, and like you say being helpful probably without being rude but Frankly, if it works, you know, if it works for some people, skirting that line, well, you know, they should be them. Yeah. So then I make the distinction between being, you know, aggressive in selling, which it, which is which takes us into zero sum territory, or being assertive in the sales process, and they're, they're rather different things. And the latter need not be a contradiction with positive sum selling. So I really want to come onto that because I think there's a really powerful thing around that difference and actually when you get into the i guess you know, i'd probably call it loosely the sales journey that you know helping people understand the difference between being assertive and being rude because i think it's failure one in our industry is probably can you sell failure two is then are you being too polite about it and losing sales because of it and just before we move on to that i want to dig in a little bit to one of the points you mentioned around sales being a skill because i think We've talked about one of those or, or sort of really focused on one of the aspects of it being grubby. And I think that is a real hang up. 
And then the second one is, as you sort of alluded to, is, is frankly people who just say, oh, well, I'm not a born salesman. I wasn't that kid in the school playground who was selling sweets from the tuck shop. So how can I do this? Now, I guess, what is it you mentioned around the workshops that you've sort of run with clients and you know, you've worked with plenty of firms on this? Yeah. What are some of the challenges they have and how do you help people almost overcome that and understand they can learn it? Yeah. So part of this is letting people let go of the idea that salespeople are born because they're, they're made rather than born. And again, there's a wealth of positive psychology from, from, and when I say positive psychology, it's a specific dimension of research that's sort of cornerstone in mental toughness. I'm thinking particularly of the work of Carol Dweck and the concept of a growth mindset as distinct from a fixed mindset. I was reading it over Christmas, but please, for my listeners, please explain what it is. So so the, the growth mindset is the approach that says, Skills are made rather than innate and, and that it's possible to acquire just about any skill you take, you care to think of with the right level of application and, and with levels of practice and by uh, leaning into it and being quite determined about it. It's, it. You can achieve a lot. If you have the mindset that I simply wasn't born that way, uh, that will become self-fulfilling. So the skills that one needs for selling are much less to do with techniques and methodologies and much more to do with the ability to persist and the ability to deal with some of the negativity that you'll encounter, particularly, you know, the rejection that's an inevitable part of the sales cycle. So what I try and get people to, to think about is, you know, what's my plan for building my sales skills? What are the components of something called deliberate practice, which was coined by, uh, by Anders Ericsson, the Swedish scientist that's looked at high performers in a range of sports and other areas such as musicianship. And, you know, if you take a deliberate practice approach to building your skills in anything, that means carving out time to do it. It means getting help from experts or mentors. It means getting a feedback loop and so forth. But it does take effort and it does mean taking yourself outside your comfort zone, which can be quite fearful for people. But those that do sort of grasp the nettle do quickly find it becomes quite satisfying. Completely agree with you on on both of those points. I think the the Carol Dweck growth mindset piece, funnily enough, it's something a, a former guest, Simon Dennis over at Gate One, highlighted as one of his his top reads. And it's slightly shameful it's taken me this long to get to it, but I think it is really important. And actually, I think in a high performing world where people have come through, particularly academia, and I know that uh, Carol Dweck makes this point of almost if you focused your whole life on exams and passing things, actually moving to a growth mindset where where failure is is almost certain at some point it can be quite a daunting thing for people listening this i think is going to be across the grades but you tell me if it plays out differently at different grades is for someone who who's listened to this and thought okay actually i'm going to give this a go how can they start small so you know a sports analogy doesn't hold here but i'm going to i'm going to butcher one for the sake of it is you know if they're saying right i want to go and run 100 meters what can they do to start? You know, they're not going to start in the Olympics and they're not going to start at sort of, you know, the local meet. What is the equivalent of just going running up and down the street for someone who wants to, you know, start to build that sales skills in a, you know, a low risk environment, if you like? I don't think there's a necessarily a low risk environment. The minute you embrace selling, you're, you're exposing yourself to risk. And part of the process is becoming at ease with the failure, the negativity, the rejection, because it's definitely going to become a part of it. Maybe we'll come to how, how you cope with that. So I think I would suggest, you know, the equivalent of something in sport, you know, the small steps, the baby steps would be the lowest hanging fruit, what, where, where stuff is warmest. 
So looking for further opportunities within existing clients, looking for your close relationships where people you know well would be open to an initial conversation. And I think it's quite natural to say to somebody that you know quite well, not necessarily within a client, but maybe someone within your network who could potentially be a client and say to them, can we have a coffee? I'm feeling my way into this whole sales thing to advance my career. And um, I'd just love a, a, a informal chat with you that might take the shape of a sales conversation ultimately, but it'd be useful for me just to, you know, have a, have a sort of no pressure chat exploring you know what you're doing and how we might be able to help so i would i would start with within the comfort zone before stepping outside it i think it's really good advice Ian. and like you say that so often people think you've got to start and therefore you've got to go after that you know that new million dollar or million pound account or you know the the biggest firm in your industry and actually you know those baby steps that you you highlight i think is a is a really good way i want to come on to because you mentioned it and i think it brings us really nicely into the mental toughness piece and that handling negativity so i, I want to go there by the way I, I'm, I'm writing down all of the bits i've promised we'll go back to because <laughs> I, I have a terrible habit of jumping around but i want to get your advice and it might be one of the things you've already said so this could be quick but I, i'm really keen to dig into it of i know one of the things that helped me in my own selling is having a framework. So I completely agree with you that sort of, you know, it's not a set of tools and, a, you know, if you've got to sort of do a special hand signal and, and sort of say the magic words at the right time and all that, so it's, it's not that. But I know personally it helped me having a, a structure or a philosophy or, a, you know, a framework. And I, I mean, you've mentioned things like the challenger, so you've mentioned sort of Dan Pink and to sell as human. But if it's one of those, let me know. But if not... If someone's listening to this thinking, right, I'm going to take your advice, I'm going to go have that coffee, is there a framework, either one you can describe or one that you can, you know, you can give me a URL or a book and I can link to, just something that would, would get someone started so almost they've got the comfort of at least they know the steps to go through in that conversation? Yeah. So there isn't uh, a single methodology out there that I would point to. What I would say is needed is a very simple outline process, maybe a five-step process. And again, this is where something uh, like having the right CRM is really, really helpful. So a five-step process might be, one, making contact with somebody, two, having a meeting, three, having a proposal, four, beginning negotiations, and five, agreeing to go ahead. And that clarity of process is so important. Where am I in the process? If I'm having a meeting with somebody, what's the outcome of that meeting? Generally, it's to move to the next stage of the process and to be clear that that's what you're trying to do. And if you aren't going to do that, then maybe you're going to qualify that, that opportunity out of your pipeline. And it's also quite useful to be upfront with your prospect about where we are in the process and what the objective of that meeting is. So very often when people get started with this whole sales thing, what you'll often find mm. is they'll, they'll make contact with folk and go and meet them for a cup of coffee and then come back and they're not quite sure what's happened or what's next. So, so just having clarity about that process and what the next steps are and having your client or prospect being clear on that is to me, you know, 90% of the, of the battle. You don't need any particular methodology. If you're doing zero-sum selling, you need methodology, you need techniques, you need to worry about, you know, acronyms and how to, how to conduct the call. You don't really need that in a, in a positive sum world. All you need to do is have clarity of where you are in the process and how you're moving uh, an opportunity through those stages or qualifying it out. 
I do want to touch on the process side because I think it's a a really important bit. But I think just before we we move off into the, I guess, the more structural elements of that sort of pipeline, that funnel creation, I do think it's it's probably a nice place to touch on the negativity side. Because I think, you know, if we think about the consultant listening to this, they get why they should do it. They get what to do. And actually, I guess there's there's two sides to the sort of negativity and rejection. There's almost the, and I, I'd be interested to get your take on this. So I think there's people who get disenfranchised because it's almost death by a thousand cuts in that they're not potentially brave enough to sell. So they have 50 coffees and get nothing. So they think they're no good at selling. Or there's the, you know, the short, sharp rejection of you have a meeting and someone says, no, I'm not interested. And that's usually the polite end of what they say. And whichever one, you know, you see, or maybe both, or whichever one you see more of, I'd be interested how you sort of help people develop that, you know, mental toughness, as you call it, to persevere and, you know, get back on the horse, go for that next coffee and and continue to do that repeatedly. Yeah. It might be worth saying for a, a little bit about the science here, because what I'm constantly surprised by is that there is some fantastic science out there from positive psychology on what predicts success in selling. And nobody ever uses it. It's almost completely ignored. So what the science tells us is there there are two attributes of personality, if you like, that predict success in selling. One is grit, something coined by Angela Lee Duckworth that that captures that ability to persist with passion towards our goals. And the other one has come from Martin Seligman, and it's called learned optimism. And optimism does not here reflect our idea that everything's going to turn out well. It talks about how we explain events to ourselves, the explanatory style. So if something doesn't go well, are we going to take that personally and, and say, well, that's me. It's just, it's just further proof that I'm no good at selling. Are we going to say to ourselves, it's always going to be like this. I'm never going to get any good at this. And are we going to say, think of it as pervasive. No one's buying. It's Brexit, whatever. So the best way of summarizing this is the three Ps, something made quite popular by Sheryl Sandberg in a Stanford address, which is very good at bringing this across. The three Ps stand for personal, permanent and pervasive. And so, so what I help people with is understanding the brain's natural self-protection mechanisms. When we're wired to shy away from things that have caused us social pain, and, and you don't get much more acute social pain than being rejected or ignored in the sales process. So the brain will be explaining what's happened, often in a very negative way. It's personal, it's permanent, it's pervasive. So you kind of you need to push back on that. So when I work with clients on building their resilience muscles, because they can indeed be built, the very first part of that is understanding the mental chatter that we all experience. And I say all, I mean, it never quite goes away. Even someone as experienced as myself, when I get that chatter just the same as everyone else, because your, your negative brain wants to stop you from doing anything that's going to risk getting our genes into the next generation and, and surviving. So we're, we're wired for the ancestral environment 100,000 years ago. So that's not particularly helpful in today's 21st century world. It was great when uh, it was all about avoiding saber-toothed tigers and poisonous plants and, and so forth. So building those resilience muscles is, is very much about understanding the way the brain processes negativity and having the language to push back against some of those impulses, which will be to... You know, the impulse will be to avoid putting yourself in that position again. And and what happens when mental toughness isn't there, 
uh, you'll often see a lot of avoidant behavior uh, and displacement activity. And that's where the I'm too busy thing comes from. So, so the classic uh, rationale for not having devoted or carved out time for selling is I'm too busy. I'm consumed with delivery. This client has asked me to do this. And it's rarely in my experience about time management, much more about mind management. How do you help people overcome that? Because I, so I completely agree with everything you've said. And I was reading something, you know, one of these things that pops up on social media the other day, of like a quote from, I can't remember who it was, but a world famous sports star saying basically exactly the same thing. And I think it's, it's all about how you manage it, not that it disappears. And, and how, again, it might be that there are or there aren't, but where do you point people to or how do you advise people to sort of overcome that? Is there any tools or techniques or tactics either specifically related to sales or more just generally about building that sort of mental toughness and resilience that you help people with? So again, it's it's about managing your explanatory style. So this is something that can feel a little bit complicated and does need a little bit of sort of work in depth. But you sometimes need to push back on the emotional part of your brain when when you're hearing those sort of negative explanations when you take it personally, or when you start to tell yourself that this is permanent and pervasive, you need the mechanisms to push back on that, challenge it straight away, so that you're not inhibited from persisting. So a lot of this is about learning to deal with the emotional reactivity of the brain, understanding the, the language that you'll be hearing internally, and being able to push back on that. And I, over time, and I, I do have tools that people use to, particularly if they've been bruised quite heavily by a negative experience to kind of process that. So just by stepping through a worksheet, they can often push back on that negative emotional reactivity and it leaves them better place to sort of pick it up, pick themselves up and bounce back, which is ultimately what resilience is. And uh, it's a, well, it's, it's a shameless plug by me for your book, but is that you, know, you mentioned around worksheets there, for instance. Is, is that something that you, you cover in your book? Is there, you know, is there a handout you give? I'm, just, I'm really keen if there's something that worked for the firms you work with, if there's a place we can point listeners to to try that sort of thing, it'd be really useful. So that's very much part of the book. So since you're kind enough to mention it, it's, it's called Head Starts, Build a Resilient Mindset so you can achieve your goals. And I do include a worksheet that enables people to sort of process uh, a negative experience. And it goes into some depth on this this whole area of learned optimism well what i'll do in is i'll put um when we put the show notes out i'll put a link in the, the show notes so that anyone who's listening to this right now they go to the show notes on on my website or in the podcast app itself whichever one they're listening to it'll be in there because no i think it's a the reason i, I highlight it is i think it's a really powerful part of particularly what's well, developing in any skill isn't it? it's that growth mindset but selling is almost the area where people feel it more most acutely because also it's the I guess it comes to that vulnerability point as well. It's actually, it's probably one of the only areas in life where you're putting yourself in someone else's hands and they're deciding your, as I'm sure some of the people said to you, that they're deciding whether they want you or not. They're deciding your value. And, and that can be really, if you don't deal with that in the right way, it can be a real problem for people. So I, so, you know, I think it's hugely important. I think that naturally brings us on to actually the, the pipeline piece, particularly around sort of almost building your own or managing your own pipeline. And, and if pipeline is not the right word or the word that you use, we, we can vary it. But I think the thing that you highlighted, and frankly, I, I see this all the time doing what I do now in terms of marketing, is step one in sales, you mentioned around developing a pipeline, is, is let's go for that coffee. And step two is actually then the follow-up. You know, I think um, too often from consultants I know, there is a, if step one is not asking for the sale, step two is almost being too polite around 
that follow-up. And almost to avoid what you highlighted before of being too pushy, I think some people can sometimes be too, almost too far the other way and just take the view of, oh, well, if they've not messaged me, they're not interested. And I think, you know, as I'm sure you, you will explain much better than I, ultimately, people are busy. And actually, if you don't stay front and center of mind, you know, they, they can drop away. And so I'm, I'm interested to get your take on, on how much of a problem that is in, in consulting, particularly, and, and how you advise people to get to a point where they understand that and can strike the right balance. So they're not bombarding people every day with, you know, Ian, what are you doing? Ian, are you buying? Ian, are you buying? But they're not going the other way and saying, oh, Ian, I, I dropped your message last year. Are you still looking for something? Yeah. So interestingly, this isn't unique to consulting. It's true of sales in general. Uh, and you're absolutely right. There's Pipeline is the perfect word for it. It's a metaphor. So you visualize the popper at the top that's, that narrows down and you do need to put lots of stuff in there. And you do need to follow up. So you've made the point, this exact exactly right, that people are busy. People have the intention to follow up with you and other stuff happens and the email that you sent sort of drifts down their inbox out of the line of sight. So one of my favorite bits of social psychology describes something called the spotlight effect. And this is related to this idea of taking things personally. So there was, I won't describe the, the experiment at length because it will take a little while to explain it, but I'll just leave a little teaser by saying that it involves Barry Manilow in some way. Um, <laughs> you're gonna to have to send me a link to the experiment yeah, yeah, so that i yeah. and listeners can go and have a look at yeah. it but keep going ca- ca- carry on but, but the spotlight effect describes the, the way in which we are we think we're standing under a spotlight so we overestimate the extent to which other people are judging us by a factor of about two and and by the way being ignored is much worse for us than being rejected again it's a, it's something that goes back to our ancestral environment where being ostracized by your social group you know could lead to death so we're we're very mm. we're very finely tuned to to avoid putting ourselves in situations where we might be ignored and ostracized but when we don't hear back from somebody and it happens all the time you know you'll have a great meeting you've sent a proposal and yeah it's exactly the time's right it's exact, and then it goes dead happens all the time happens to the best of us so when when you don't hear back Again, the emotional parts of your brain will take it personally. They've obviously decided for some reason that I'm rubbish and so they're, they're not replying. And so this doesn't mean that you need to doggedly hound somebody you know, hourly, but there is an appropriate level and you have to find that point yourself. But there is an appropriate level for pushing back and saying, I haven't heard from you. Is, is, is this something you'd like to take forward? I'd say a couple of things about how, how to do this and, and, and how frequently. Firstly, I think at every stage of the sales process, if you're emphasizing the positive sumness, you always need to give the other party an opportunity to say, actually, this isn't right or the timing's not right. And, you know, so I, you know, I always advise people to do that because it, it will quieten down that part of your brain that's getting worried about being too salesy in inverted commas. Okay, so that's one thing. The other thing is, if you persist um, while giving them an opportunity to come back and say, well, things have changed or it's not right and come back in six months, what will happen is people will turn around and say, thank you for persisting. And that's when you know you've got it about right. And I've worked with you know, some people that have managed to develop the habit of following up properly. This is why I advocate a good CRM system, because if you develop a process which says, for example, you know, I haven't emailed that person for, you know, two weeks. So you, you email them or you call them. And in your 
in your CRM, you make yourself a little diary reminder to do it again in two weeks' time. And then it becomes less draining emotionally. You're not thinking to yourself, why haven't they come back to me? You're just making it a natural part of the process. And the other thing that I think I, I tell people to do, which is, which is quite helpful, I think, is to when you're having a meeting with somebody and you've agreed that you're going to send them a proposal and you've qualified it, of course, rigorously. The, the other thing to ask is, if I haven't heard from you, when would be a good time for me to get back in touch? So you, mm. kind, of, you kind of got permission to persist at that point. So it's a little thing, but I, I think it's, it, it, can, it can be helpful for your own ability to persist and it dampens down some of this sort of anxiety about, oh my God, am I bugging this person? Are they gonna, what are they going to think of me? Yeah, and, and I think you know, we'll come on to CRM and, and systems because I think a, another challenge in our industry, albeit you know, it, it's, it's not universal, is it, almost because sales is not seen as a core part, CRMs aren't seen as a core part. And, and actually, I think there's you know, part of that concern comes from the fact that if you're not using a crm and and you know we'll come on to because we have a, a, a crm ourselves and you know many of our clients do all of our clients do i should say but even if you don't have a crm you know if someone's listening to this and frankly they just have outlook well you can set a reminder it's a bit more manual but you can easily set a reminder in two weeks and actually by removing that mental burden you you remove a lot of the stress it's funny the thing that one of the things that sticks with me is a, a tim ferris quote I feel that my quotes are a lot less well-informed than yours. Mine have very little academic gravitas behind them. But you know, he made the point that don't blame on malice what you can blame on busyness. And I've probably yeah. butchered the quote. But it, but I think, like you say, people take a negative if all, oh, you know, Ian's not sent me a, a message on that proposal. And I know we've had it that, you know, I, there were clients of ours that it took six months. And, and frankly, in our industry, in consulting, six months is not uncommon in terms of a gestation period. And actually, touching base every two weeks is not, most people probably get 2,000 emails in that time. You know, it's scary, but it's not un- un- unheard of to get. And so if you're sending someone one email a week, you know, you're one 2,000th of their inbox, you're, n- you're not going to be a dent. But like you say, that spotlight effect, and I'm going to look up the... Uh, I'm intrigued to hear what Barry Manilow <laughs> did or didn't do, but I think it's really important. And actually also, I guess it's implicit in what you're saying, but frankly, doing it is the other thing, which is where the CRM comes. Because I think it's very easy, and, you know, I, I know I've I've been guilty of this in the past, is... If you've got loads of stuff on, you just forget the prospect you messaged two weeks ago. Quite, quite. Yeah. So part of the discipline is, is about consistently following up and sticking to the process. And CRM won't do it for you, but it will definitely help you do it consistently. And it will take some of the ego depletion, the sort of forcing yourself to do something that you feel uncomfortable with. It feels much more emotionally neutral. If you're just saying, well, okay, here's my CRM. Here are 10 activities I've got to do today. I'll just get on and do it. I've got to pick up the phone to so-and-so. Here's where we were last time. Okay, I've got to send a follow-up email. So you're, you're almost taking the, the sort of motion, motivational drive out of it and making it uh, just a, a, a quite mechanistic, which from an emotional point of view makes it easier to, to, to follow through with it. Yeah, I was going to say something else about pipeline as well, because as well as follow-up, there is, of course, the need to get lots of stuff in the in the top of the hopper. I don't know if you were going to come to that. Uh, well, so it was, <laughs> you you preempted me very nicely. So so let's talk about it. And actually, so interestingly, and and just to to set context, and this will help me as much as as anyone else. Is so 
you know, it's, it's a core thing that we talk to our clients about from a marketing perspective. But I'm meeting with a group of consulting firms at the end of the week and was asking them for challenges. And, and one of them, their exact question was, you know, how do you build that cold pipeline? So I'd be really interested in, like you say, it's it's one thing if you're just messaging your your friends and your network, but how do you go about filling the hopper? Yeah. So f- first of all, on the necessity of filling the hopper. So we're not in the zero sum world where every opportunity can be turned into a sale. So if you're selling timeshare, you know, you, you can physically keep people in the room until they bring their credit card out and you can, you know, so it's not. Whatever happened to timeshare? Sorry. You've, you've, I told you we go off on tangent. Do they still exist? Because I remember that was where I, I remember those from years gone by as the sort of archetypal, terrible product that people sold. Well, it does in certain parts of the world. Uh, oddly, it's British people doing it. I, I went on holiday with my wife to Mexico, to the, the Maya Riviera, as they call it. And um, I was intrigued when we were invited to a timeshare presentation just to see how they did it from a sales point of view. So I subjected us to what turned into about an hour and a half uh, before physically getting up and saying, I am now leaving. I'm just keeping <laughs> out. But um, what was quite interesting was whoever had conceived the whole process had clearly read Influenced by Robert Cialdini and used everything in that book, but done it in a dreadful way. So, so it kind of backfired. This is, this is clearly a digression, but one I'm happy to go down. But I could see absolutely at every stage what they were doing. You know, they gave us a little, they gave us a little freebie. The guy was really pleasant. They got me to fill a little survey saying, you know, what I like to do so they could play that back to me so that I thought, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, it's obvious I need a timeshare apartment because <laughs> I've said that I, you know, like to do this. That they had all these little techniques. Some of them were quite subtle. So we were being shown around an apartment and another couple were brought in. And when they'd left, our chap said, um, they've already bought, but they wanted to see one of these ones. So social proof, you know, tick the social proof yeah, box. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It doesn't work. It doesn't really work. I think the interesting thing about the book you mentioned, so Robert Cialdini Influence, I think is what is in there and I think what you were explaining is, you know, if you take it to the extreme is what you see or what you saw in that timeshare event. And actually after this, I'll tell you all about a property event I went to, which was was exactly the same. And and I actually, in a weird way, I, I would kind of recommend people go to these a bit like when you teach a child to do something, you teach them like the extreme end. Yeah. But actually it shows you how these things work and, and the visceral feeling it has on you. Um, I always just, and, and we'll come back to Sildini in a, in a second, but I always remember, so I went to this property event and, and you'll like this, is they had a technique. Where, so they'd done all the scarcity stuff and the social proof was actually, they basically got, if you imagine the audience is 100 people, they got everyone who wanted to buy the thing up on stage. And now most people just wanted to be on stage with the speaker. So you ended up with like, I don't know, 80% of the audience on stage. And, and I was sort of sitting in the, the front or second row. And I just remember, you know, I knew what was they were doing, but the feeling of 80 people standing on a stage going, you know, why aren't you buying this? Is it, it, It's amazing to behold. It's interesting because I think, and, I, and you, know, you can tell me if you agree or disagree, and, I, and I'm open to either, but I think that book specifically, while I agree with you in the sort of zero-sum versus positive-sum piece, there's a lot of interesting aspects in that that do play into our buying decisions that I think actually are quite important at the right volume, if you like. So, you know, social proof, for instance, is massive when selling anything because actually your clients need to know you can you can do it and others have bought from you. But I completely agree with you that going to, and, and your wife must love you if you took her to a timeshare presentation <laughs> on holiday, I hasten to add. But actually it's, I guess with those sort of 
elements. It's about getting the right balance for your context, your client and your sale and not like you say, almost overplaying your hand. And, and I, some of those things also are only going to work in a sort of B2C space. So I'd, I'd love to think of you bringing, you know, bringing another client in and saying, oh, we're too busy to work with you. But people, <laughs> you know, it, these things happen. But yeah. sorry, that was a, a yeah. digression on a digression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so because we're not in a zero-sum world, we're going to have lots of people for who, where there isn't a fit. So the timing's not right. We haven't got any budget. We're, we've just had a major reorganization. You know, what you have is, going to, is perfect for them, but maybe at another time. So for that reason, you absolutely need to put a lot and, and people almost universally don't put enough in at the top of the pipeline. And as you say, people find that a challenge. And you mentioned the word cold. So, so when people talk about cold, they think of cold calling. And again, there's, a, there's, a, there's an image here of being given a phone directory and having to sit by the phone and, and, and ring people up and work through it. So I've got two things to say to that. The first thing is there's much more warm stuff around than you probably think. So what I take people through is a structured pipeline development tool, which says, let's start with the warm stuff before we have to worry about going through the yellow pages or whatever. And often, you know, okay, let's go through your existing clients. Have you, have you exhaustively pursued all the new opportunities within your existing clients? And there's almost always more that one can do. You know, what, what about people that you haven't worked with for a while? When did you last ring the client that you'd worked with a year ago or 18 months ago? Have you systematically got something that says, I'm going to give that person a call or go and meet them? Again, some people do that rigorously, but often people don't. Something that I find really interesting is how rarely people go to a client and ask them, who else should I be talking to? I mean, it's a, it's a really fundamental thing but people are happy to do it if you've done great work for somebody you know that's a very natural thing for, for them to say you know that they want to evangelize what 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 you've done and they're often really happy to give you fantastic introductions but you know they may think of it themselves and say oh, I, I want to introduce you to x but there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking so people people rarely do that i mean one thing i this is what i'm about to say is not an invitation but i am amazed at how rarely Clients contact me and say, I see you're connected to so-and-so on LinkedIn. Is it someone you knew well? Could you introduce, you know, it's happened with industrial sales clients. So people, high, you know, very high-performing senior salespeople who, whose companies paid me money. So it's a perfectly legitimate thing to say to me, can you introduce me to so-and-so? They're in a company we want to work with. Do you know them well? Is it appropriate to introduce them? It almost never happens with people from the consulting world. And I've, you know, I've, I've got a pretty extensive network. I've got people in all, senior people in different industries. Again, not an advert, but I'm just making the point. Yeah, well, I might take you up on that afterwards, <laughs> but we'll, we'll hold that till the yeah, end. Yeah. So the, the, the summary there is there's much, much warmer stuff than people generally think. So if you take a really structured approach to your network, for example, so just, just let's go through your LinkedIn connections. Who's moved jobs? That you haven't you didn't notice this but you know six months ago someone you're connected to move jobs that might be a, an opportunity there's so much warm stuff there before you have to start thinking about cold right so then then i talk about cold calling which has a terror for people quite unnecessarily because again there's a fixed mindset often that, that cold calling doesn't work and i have to say from personal experience done in the right way it does 
And again, this is about attitude and mindset. So when I work with high-performing consultants that sell well, they want new logos. They, they think of companies that they're not currently working with and they say, we should be working with that firm. There's almost a sense of entitlement. They can see the fit. And, and so they say, who do we know? How can we get an introduction to so-and-so? Does anybody, you know, they're, they're constantly looking for ways in. It doesn't have to be zero sum. It doesn't have to be sleazy. You're just looking for some, some form of entree. And sometimes that might mean dropping an email to somebody that you've never met and saying, we haven't spoken before. I thought I'd get in touch because it strikes me that what we do could be very relevant to you. Here are some examples. Here are some case studies, blah, blah, blah. I do that. I do that. And, it, and, and I, get, I get work through doing that. So on the warm selling side, because I think something you've struck on there is actually part of the terminology and it was you know me who used it, so it was my fault, but I think a lot of people in our industry use similar of almost the difference between a warm and cold lead and that most people think of a warm lead as someone who's you know shaken a hand and said, yeah, let's, let's do business or let's have a meeting. And I think the thing you're highlighting, and, and it's, it's really important, and you know, frankly, we've, one of our longest standing clients has come exactly from the approach you said of, you know, I, mess- I messaged a number of people I knew who knew me, knew what we were doing and said, well, do you know anyone who, knowing me, knowing them, knowing what we do, might want to have a conversation and might need us? And I think it's one of those things that sounds obvious when you say it, but consulting firms and consultants focus so much on delivering a great outcome. You know, I don't know a successful consultant firm that isn't built on you know great work and, and great clients, like you say, that positive sum, great value adding, you know, project. But then you know, if you've got these evangelists in these businesses, why wouldn't they recommend you to other people in their network? And and it's, I guess, that five degrees of separation, isn't it, of you don't know who they know. And if you don't ask the question, you don't know. But it's almost, it's redefining what a warm lead is, isn't it? From I know you because we've met through to I might know you or you might know someone. So I'll, you know, I'll get in touch. Yeah. So I I use warm to mean anything that is not total, cold, unsolicited, no, no relationship of any kind. And there's, as I say, there's varying degrees of warmth, but so I use it probably to mean something a little cooler than <laughs> many people have in mind. I think it's that spectrum that most people forget of, there's more, more out in the world than just completely cold and, and sort of, I guess, quite warm going on hot. And I guess the other side of the cold thing is you, you sort of mentioned in the example that you were saying, because I agree as well, you know, it works, is a lot of it depends on what you are going out to someone with. And I think, again, a bit like sort of the modern day equivalent of sort of that encyclopedia selling and consultants, you know, my listeners will have it all the time is you get that recruiter who's never looked at your profile, who says, you know, we should speak because I've got some jobs you might be interested in. And, and I'm, hey, it must work. It's why estate agents letterbomb people. But that gets a negative reaction because it is, it's, it's all about a zero sum. You know, what am I taking from you? But like you've highlighted, you know, you can't know where every every potential client is in their journey when they might need you. And actually, if you share something of value, you know, we do it from an inbound perspective. We we put out targeted PPC and, and help our clients do it and, and drive inbound. But it's the same thing is, you know, we're driving cold inbound. You can do exactly the same thing cold outbound, but it's about what you're giving to get that, isn't it? it would be my take. Yeah. I, I don't know if you'd agree yeah, with that. Absolutely right. Yeah. So sometimes a give helps. I mean, I would I would say in whatever you're sending to somebody, if it's an email or any other form of communication, emphasizing the positive sumness of the potential relationship is what it's is what it's all about for me. So that will be less off-putting than I would like to sell you something. Although people, some people are just going to 
you know, batter away whatever you send them, but but and you have to live with that. But the more you can bring that positive sunness to life, the, the more likely it is that somebody's going to engage. So you triggered a point that I, I meant to, I noted down, I meant to add to what you said or, or sort of get your take on. I, I think you highlighted it, but I really wanted to drive it home because it's something that, you know, it comes out in what you're saying about this positive sum piece of there is a a cycle, if you like, to a, a lead or a put, you know, frankly, let's call them what they're the people and where they are in their journey in terms of buying you. And actually, I think too often people will forget about someone because they spoke to them a, a year ago and they didn't need a digital system transformation or, a, you know, they didn't need an operating model or whatever it might be. And so you actually, people discount them. You know, it's almost, they sort of tick them off their list. So I had 100 leads, I've now got 99. Whereas I think what you're saying is actually that hopper is, you know, it's a recycling of just because you spoke to someone a year ago, they may have moved firms, they may have moved roles, they may have just frankly had a, a, a difficult year or change. You That in itself can help you build that pipeline of you know, cold or sort of lukewarm leads as well. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. It'd be good now to almost turn to some of the things you've talked about around process, because I think we've, we've covered some really great ground for individuals in terms of just that mindset and, you know, that, that specific bits around how can I fill my hopper? How can I manage that hopper? Maybe we start with CRM and you sort of move from there. But I think what are some of these systems or processes that consultants, be it, you know, individuals, if they're listening to this, or if it's, you know, because so listeners to the podcast range from analyst to sort of managing partner level. So whether it's a different answer or not for, you know, if I'm a junior trying to set this up on my own versus a managing partner who's trying to build this out for my firm, what are some of those systems or processes that really need to be put in place to to underpin that successful sales culture? I often come across particularly smaller consulting firms that run everything on spreadsheets and also independent consultants will often do the same thing. So I, I think there is no lower limit from when it makes sense to use CRM. Even if it's for an independent operator, one seat on a good CRM system is invaluable because it brings with it the structure. You've got the mechanism there to have a five or six or seven stage process. They're all malleable. And if you get one that presents the pipeline graphically to you on the screen, as some do, I think there's a almost a neurological benefit to you when you move something through the pipeline. You get a little bit of a dopamine squirt. I can agree to that firsthand. There's nothing more exciting than moving something from yeah. prospect to proposal to uh, sold. Exactly, exactly. And I and I think you know, d- developing the, the virtuous habits of, you know, setting up your activities, moving stuff through the pipeline, qualifying stuff out, that makes the whole sales process habitual. And again, I mentioned ego depletion, this idea that it becomes sort of, you know, you can, it, 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 can, it can become demoralizing when things don't go well. You can easily become deflated. The more you make it a process, it becomes emotionally neutral. And that's why having the right CRM system is particularly helpful. I can recommend a particular one. I don't know if you want to endorse. I'm not paid by this supplier, but well, no, I, I'm always I'm always interested. I have my own views and and thoughts on. So we just as a, a we use Agile. Um, okay. We have clients on PipeDrive, um, yeah. but I'm intrigued. What's the one you'd recommend? Well, you, you've just named it PipeDrive. Um, that's the one I use, and and I recommend that to other people. I'm not not paid by them, but I think uh, and it's continually got better. They've they've introduced new features to it that um, make it much richer, and it integrates really neatly with other other things as well so um 
Yep, I should I should get a commission for that. I think, but uh, you should if you've got a referral code or something. I'm happy to put it in the um, the show notes. But um, but no, we do say one particular client of ours uses Pipe Drive, and it, it's brilliant. Only reason we use Agile is just that's where I started. Yeah. Um, when we started, and actually, it does. So so why I use it is exactly what you've said, and what I know Pipe Drive does. I think probably better is it, it's that visualization, it's that deal track, you know, the reporting. I mean, pipe drives what ten? I mean, you tell me you, you pay for it. It's something like ten quid a month, isn't it? It's it's, it's, it's not pennies expensive. in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. So I pay for the it's like the platinum version annually, and so I can't remember what that is. But you can get a three month trial of it free, and I would I would advocate that uh, anybody that's currently flying a spreadsheet should migrate stuff over to that. It's um, hugely beneficial. So yeah, that's a big part of the process, and and, and in fact, having that disciplines you into identifying what the steps of your process are so that's one of the outputs of using crm properly as you get to do that the emotional thing's interesting as well and i'm intrigued on your your take or what your clients think because i think the other thing that i think the crm can really help with especially that graphical element is let's say you've got 20 conversations in train you can see them and so if one goes badly well actually you don't take as much of an emotional hit because your sort of fight or flight response can't kick in because you can see the 20 whereas if you've not got that you forget about those and think the world's going to cave in because you've only got the one. And, and I, I mean, I personally found that helpful. And I don't know if that's something that you find with your sort of clients, that's a, a draw as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's, it's, if it rewards you for structuring and maintaining a healthy pipeline. Absolutely right. And by the sounds of it, and from what you're saying, it almost whether you are an individual consultant or a, a firm, you know the things you're talking about and the CRMs you're talking about. You you can set up yourself. You know if you're a a partner in a firm or a director wanting to make partner, or even you've just come into a firm. You know, like you said, Pipe Drives free for three months, and I I'll have to check after this, but I don't think the basic subscription is going to be cost the earth. Actually, setting this up yourself will give you a good starting point. Yeah, I would agree. That's absolutely right. The other thing I would say is for junior people in consulting firms that are just starting out asking to get a seat on the CRM, which might typically be withheld for people at a certain level of seniority or people that are, you know, already quite advanced in sales or business development. Part of leaning into this and and building your growth mindset is saying, I want a seat on the CRM so I can start putting opportunities in there. Put your hand up and ask, ask for it. Yeah, and it's an interesting one. I'd be intrigued if you find this with clients you've worked with, because I think the other one of the challenges that some firms can face is actually because CRMs can do you know so much, and like you say, and I'm sure you know in the industrial in industrial side they're used a lot more frequently and for a lot more. But actually, I've seen instances where almost because there's so much they can do, people try and do it all and and almost get disenfranchised with the CRM because. You need to do meeting notes, you need to do opportunities, you need to do funnel management. And almost if someone was just putting a CRM into their firm or, or like you say, sort of trying to start out, if they could only do one thing with a CRM, what, what is that key thing that would add that value and just keep it super simple for them? If I come at a sort of reverse into that answer, often the motivation for putting a CRM in is activity management, forecasting, not helping people sell better. So if you've started with that in mind and you get into the sort of um, star chamber, some, in industrial companies, it can almost become surveillance. If you get into that mindset, then then you've come, come at it from the wrong direction. So if you're putting a CRM in to help people get better at selling, then it needs to be just very simple, bottom-up process. 
And the reporting should just drop out of that naturally without being something that individuals are troubled with. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, really, it's a really powerful point. And thank you for, for reversing into it because that why is so critical. You know, is it a sales enablement tool or is it a, a reporting? And like you say, in some industries, it does become a surveillance tool. I guess, is there any other, just thinking about it, any other of those sort of firm-wide pieces of infrastructure or processes or systems that anyone listening to this who's, who wants to implement a sales culture in their organization should be thinking of? Or is that CRM the sort of main yeah. one? So there's probably two other key things. One is what sort of sales meetings you have. So are your sales meetings star chambers? Where are we with this? You know, what's happened to this proposal that's been drifting? Or are they meetings that are supportive, that are where people put their hand up and say, I could use some help with this opportunity. So having the right sort of structured meeting that is not, you know, about forecasting and about the where are we on X is really important. Okay, so that's, uh, it's hard to do if there's, if there's pressure, but, you know, with the right structure uh, and with the right mindset, it's possible to have something that helps everybody grow and work collaboratively. Something aligned with that, some, some of the clients I've worked with have found this very helpful is, is, and I've facilitated this for them, is some sort of charter, like a sales charter. How do we want to be around the sales part of our role? And they will talk about, you know, that we're all in sales, that we, you know, we're committed to carving time out, that we will support one another, et cetera, et cetera. So having some, have some sort of shared ethos and values around the sales part is really helpful as well as part of the infrastructure. The other thing that I would say and I heard in your podcast with Rob Garner, I heard him mention this a couple of times and I kind of silently applauded, was qualification. So often it's either done poorly or, or not done at all, which means that people can often spend inordinate amounts of time, for example, writing proposals that, that are never going to lead to anything. And it become, that can become a form of displacement activity in itself. So I, I advocate a really simple approach and, and a four-letter acronym, BANT, B-A-N-T, is as good as anything else. B stands for budget. Have you got budget for this? A stands for authority. So who actually signs off on it? N for need. Is this something that for which there is a you know clearly stated need and timing? Is this something that they want to move quickly on, or is it something that we come back to in a year? So that those four letters B A N T can form the basis of a, a sort of very simple qualification tick box exercise. And if if you can't answer those questions, then you don't move it to the next stage in the in the CRM, you know, it doesn't become a qualified opportunity. And having that that discipline at that very, very important stage is probably, you know, one of those two or three things that I've mentioned that make a, a, a big contribution to your overall process and infrastructure. Yeah, and I like the point around the the meetings. And I think, again, I, I'm, I'm guessing this, but you'll know better than me. And I think if I think about consulting firms, I know a lot of firms that have had pipeline management meetings where it's very much, you know, looking at those metrics, but actually... I really like what you were sort of saying. Well, actually, is there a sales meeting, almost a support meeting where it's, you know, who could we go out to, I guess, brainstorming, you know, and I think too often consulting firms sort of forget that and just actually spending an hour a week or an hour every two weeks saying, well, who do we know? Who can you help me connect with? Who can I help connect with? It's something that I think many firms would, would be, you know, hugely benefit from. And like you say, that BANT acronym, again, just having a framework around it, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm getting the sense that it's these, it, it's keeping this stuff simple and just putting in the structures that matter that help help your clients be successful. Absolutely right. I mean, it's so much better to do something small and well rather than take on something overarching and, and complex. I think 
because sales is a bit of a black art or perceived as a black art, people feel the need for some sort of complex external process slash methodology that we have to sort of, you know, sheep dip everybody through. And it, it simply isn't necessary and, and rarely efficacious. You know, you just simple and small um, is, is best. I think that's a really nice place almost to, to round off today. And I think that simplicity point, you know, it, I, it's hit me loud and clear and hopefully those listening as well of just, you know, what you said there, it's, it's, it's better to do a few simple things well than try and overcomplicate and over-engineer. And I think as consultants, we, we can be guilty of over-engineering and developing very slick processes that potentially, you know, when something simple, maybe just like you say, pipe drive and a, a simple meeting with a terms of reference would, would do the job. So I, I want to bring us almost to the last couple of questions. And given everything you've said during our, our conversation, I think I think you might have quite a lot of answers to these. So I'm really looking forward to them. Um, and it sounds like given what you you just mentioned about you listened to the interview with Rob, um, who's, who was a great guest, by the way. So I hope I hope you enjoyed yes. it. Yes, I did. And, and other conversations of um of mine, you'll, you'll probably know what's coming here. But so these are questions I ask all of my guests. And the first one is on books. And so you, you've hit on a, a whole host. And so don't be constrained in this question. I, I constrain it to guide people. But the, the question is very much around what books you find yourself giving or recommending most often. And please, you know, don't take that to one or two. If there's 10, tell me. But if there's, you know, if there's that one or two that have really impacted you or that you find yourself giving away, obviously, including your own, you know, it would be great to hear what your recommendations are. Yeah. So, so the literal answer to that question is uh, my own book, because I have I have a couple of boxes of them, and I do give them away. So uh, yeah, so Head Start by me um, is is the one I give away most. But there are others that I recommend a lot, particularly with sales as a context. I've mentioned a couple already. Dan Pink, who's a terrific writer, and and though he's not a scientist, he's very good at making the science very accessible. So To Sell Is Human is a fantastic book about sales, and he does talk about the three Ps and learned optimism. I also like in a similar vein, Philip Delves Broughton, Life's a Pitch. We've mentioned The Challenger Sale, which is by Brent Adamson. Um, and and I, again, I think it's not about consulting sales, but I think consultants would be very reassured by the, the data from that. If I had to pick another one, it would be Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman. And that talks about some of his work that he did with Peter Shulman in Metropolitan Life, the US's biggest insurer, where he did some really interesting studies on uh, new recruits and their level of explanatory style and how that predicted success for them. So, so that's, uh, that's my final recommendation. Brilliant. Well, some, some great recommendations in there. And I think from the few, I think probably only one of those I've read, you know, a brilliant book, exactly like you say, for consultants and the other one. So I'm a big, I've been trying to, I, for, for listeners, we're doing this over Skype. I've been trying to dig out the positive psychologist that I read because it's not on sell, selling, but it is a brilliant field. I will, I will remember it after this interview. And, and sadly, I, I won't put it back in like a bad um, 1990s computer game. But, um, you know, I, th- I think like you said, I think as a field, it's, it's fantastic. And you mentioned around Carol Dweck and the growth mindset and just those sort of books that help people understand their potential and come at things from that positive perspective are, are fantastic. So thank you for those. And now I'll, I'll include links to all of those, including your own in the show notes so that um, anyone who's listening can go and find them. And then the, the last question, and again, one that you'll, you'll probably know is coming, is your advice. And so this is a recap. And, and 
you know, if it's if it's the sales piece you want to major on, as we've talked about today, brilliant. If there's other broader pieces from from some of that other sort of mental toughness side you mentioned around, you do it for, for sort of others as well. If there's anything from there, please throw that in. And this question is is for simply you've got three people in front of you. You can give one piece of advice to each. Those three people are somebody who is just starting their career in consulting, so say a graduate, someone who is in the middle. So I'm going to say manager level. I've tried, I'm, if you listen to Rob, you'll know I, I explained this then, but I, I'm trying to move away from age ranges because I, I'm usually wrong with them. And then the third is, is for the group who are approaching partner. So your director, if you like, in a sort of traditional consulting structure. And, and as I say, the, the, the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? If I, there's something I'd probably say to all of them, which is that think of sales as something that can be very satisfying and actually enjoyable rather than something that's fearful. So I, I talk about leaning in and embracing sales. And ultimately, there's nothing more motivating than mastery, feeling that you're getting better at something. And, and you'll know this, you know, when you do sell, it's actually very, very satisfying intrinsically. Um, so my first advice would be to everybody would lean in, do it more make it part of what you do. So for the first category, for the first person, I would say at that stage of their career, focus on building their network. That's going to be very valuable to them as they they become more senior. So that means networking, going to conferences, going to keeping in touch with people that that they've known in the past and, and sustaining relationships. I think for the second category, it becomes much more about being engaged in the sales process where it might not necessarily touch them day to day. So they might be working on a client, um, maybe speaking to the partner or whoever the respective person or the engagement director, whatever the, the t- title is, and, and just getting engaged with what's the next step for this client. Um, maybe there are things that I hear when I'm working with that client that are useful for that partner to know about. Maybe there's potential opportunities. Um, it's, at this stage, it's partly about listening. Uh, but also that might be the point at which you start to put your hand up and express an interest in building your skills and selling. So you might be asking for a mentor. You might be expressing your curiosity about the sales process and how you can become more involved. I also think it helps, and this is probably something you would advocate, to get some content out, to get a reputation for being an expert. So to, to putting stuff out there, not because that will bring sales opportunities, though it will, it's much more about having something to talk to people about and, and, and building your reputation. For that third category, I think when you're at that level, you know, you're almost being required to fulfill the Rainmaker role. And this is where it's about new logos, I think. That's where, that's where the, the most excitement comes, what's where the kudos comes. So at this point, I would be saying, you know, look in a very carve out time in a very targeted way to, to establishing new relationships, building, extending your network finding opportunities outside the existing um, client base to bring in. And that's, that's, a, that's, I think, the most impactful thing you can do at that level. Brilliant. Well, some really good advice there, Ian. And, and yes, we probably remiss of me. We, we didn't touch on the, the marketing side, and, and I, but I think you're, you're spot on, actually. And, and I guess it, it, it feeds into what you were saying, you've said throughout around positive sum, is actually, I think it's, it's positive sum at every step of the sales process. And so, you know, like you highlight, my, my view and what we share with clients is ultimately you need a reason to speak to someone. There has to be a positive sum from an interaction. And so even if it is, a cold, you know, we talked about cold leads earlier or cold cold introductions is if you are just meeting someone for a sale, that for me is a zero sum 
some conversation. You know, you're saying, Ian, what can I, what can you buy from me? So you need something to talk about to, to make that positive sum. Because even if you leave someone with a case study of how a competitor's done it or a different perspective on what they could do, you know, that's a positive sum interaction that's going to stand you in good stead. So, so yeah, I, I completely agree with you and some really, really good advice there. So thank you for that. So the last thing then today, and this has been brilliant, again, as I said in the, the introduction, I, I was really looking forward to this because it's a topic that I've, I've wanted to cover properly on the show for the two years I've been running it. So thank you for, for giving me that opportunity. And for anyone who, who wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about your book or, or your business, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? So if they Google Ian Price Recluder Consulting, they, they'll find my, my website, recludoconsulting.com on linkedin of course happy to take connections so either route is is a, is a good one to make contact with me fantastic well i will put both of those in the show notes as well as the the link to your book so people can find that as well so all that's left to say in is is thank you very much it's been great and and all the best for the rest of your week yeah well thank you nick i've enjoyed it great cheers thanks a lot I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb In Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.